If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. darkness that <laughs> i seen them playing in virgin megastore once oh i was there it was fucking great it was fucking amazing it my parents so were there that was their album launch <laughs> yeah uh they signed my album and they were like oh what, what's your name i was like weaver like weaver <laughs> like one who weaves <laughs> i was like yeah it's like oh man that's a great name it's like dan dan this guy's name weaver <laughs> like, weaver fucking hell that's really that's like medieval man <laughs> Hi, you're listening to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two of the best babysitters in the world. Uh, are we also hosts? No. You are. I am the you host. You are their host. I am their host. What are we? Guests? No, I just host the, the podcast and you guys co host it with me. Oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> I'm so demoted. We've been de ranked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. Stripes have you been You can always introduce yourself as a host if you want. Not, nothing stopping no, you. No, no, no. And this is the. This is the thinking behind the getting us to be pitted against each other, divide and conquer tactic of the babysitting poll. You can't, you can't do three on Facebook, so yeah. Uh, sitting to my right is Mr. Chris Cusack, Glasgow's leading feminist. Oh yeah, I've heard <laughs> that. <laughs> I'm blushing. You can't see that, but I'm um, blushing, and it is natural blush as well. Natural blush. I sit to my left is David Weaver, a man with an exceptional mind uh, and exceptional manners, who I watched earlier on. Drop some guacamole right down his shirt. <laughs> and you can mustard. never tell. American mustard right down my Suck pink t-shirt. Right uh, but it has pink. Yeah, yeah, and, kinda, yeah. And, and he's Good. stuck with that shirt because he doesn't have some outer clothing. So yeah, it's fine. the whole world's going to know. I had a hot dog. <laughs> Vegan with hot dog. much relish. Mm-hmm. But there'll be no talk about hot dogs today, guys. No, no. Well, this is a sausage-free zone. <laughs> Apart from your three hosts, <laughs> yeah. right away, the, the elephant in the room. Um, yeah, so we're going to try and do a podcast just now about Riot Girl. Yeah, three straight white men <laughs> talking about Riot Girl. 
Has that ever happened before? You just, <laughs> just it was the sound of laptops closing. The <laughs> oh God, no! <laughs> Disgust. Um, yeah, so we were hyper aware of this. Like the issue, uh, the subject of Riot Girl is, I think, really, really fascinating and really significant in its own way, which we'll go into. Um, but how do three guys fairly represent such an issue on a podcast like this? So, I think one of the main things to address was the the length of time it's taken us to do this podcast is mm-hmm. not just because we're so goddamn lazy and in demand oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in demand not so much but it's also because we really wanted to try and get female representation on the show which it turns out is quite difficult yeah yeah really quite difficult um if that's simply because women don't want to come into a room with the three of us i think I, that's probably key isn't it yeah, yeah. I, I can understand that but yeah, we so we uh, we spent weeks kind of canvassing people uh, for their opinions on Right Girl. Yeah, for uh, a while, definitely a while. We spent yeah, trying to get girls to come on as a as a movement, as a philosophy, as well as as a, a sort of musical genre, so to speak. And we had varying levels of success. We had a lot of people who were enthused and had things to say about the politics, but then had almost no interest in the music whatsoever. Conversely, we had a few people, especially. There seems to be a new generation of young women who are really um, enthused by the music itself and the empowerment, you know, just pick up something and play it. That kind of aspect of Riot Girl, the quite accessible DIY nature of it. But then we're, I, th- I think for me especially, surprisingly alienated by some of the politics of it. I mean, ideally we wanted somebody to come on live, but that's just been impossible <laughs> to arrange. And therefore this was just going to sit on a shelf indefinitely. So we're going to put it out there. And we welcome as much feedback as possible. It would be nice to get comments. It would also be nice to get Fun. some vlog content, something like that, um, so we can get a plurality of opinion and perspectives. So that, that would be really good. But as it is, we've arranged, uh, we've, we've carried out a couple of interviews, which we'll segue into later on in this, with two women with very informed and differing points of view on the subject, um, which were very, very illuminating in their own way, I think. I would like to say before we continue that if, if there are women out there who listen to this and decide that they actually do want to come on, then do, do just like send us a message. We can sort something out. It doesn't need to be in person. We can do it via Skype as well. Although, as Chris said, getting women to come on was impossible, not just because to try and get them to come on in person was really difficult, but also because we couldn't really find anybody that would talk about it at all yeah. with us. I don't know if us is the problem. or I think it's that, it's that f- nobody was so committed to both aspects of it, musically and politically, that they were really willing to stick their neck out for it which seemed to be it there were there were a lot of inherent contradictions within the movement there were some perceived faults within the movement and i think folks were just wary of you know tying themselves to that mast yeah um, i think that's totally fair uh, and it's worth pointing out as well it's like we're not trying to point fingers and say like why aren't women talking to us we're not totally not we're <laughs> totally not doing that you can find us on yeah. 4chan <laughs> forward slash incel <laughs> Shouldn't tell people about that. Uh, no, it's just that, like I said, it's been really difficult. So we appreciate any feedback, any comments, like Chris says, because that's that's the whole point of doing this podcast. It's about people talking to us and interacting with us. And I thought it was about giving us, as giving out our opinions, which are always correct. I'm with Dave in that. I think it's just that about talking not. at people. <laughs> yeah. You can tell it's definitely been an incel then, haven't you? <laughs> I'd also like to say, um, when you're talking there, it could also be a bit of an issue with the fact that maybe the mode of address isn't correct. You know, we're guys talking about music and it might be quite intimidating to come into that environment. Why? I don't know, it just might be. It's certainly something to consider. 
I think you're quite intimidating, Chris. Gets pretty fragrant. Your sharp <laughs> intellect and your intriguing looks. <laughs> <laughs> My lack of facial hair. Yeah, exactly. Distinctive <laughs> lack of facial hair. But people would trust me with their kids, and that's all that matters. The people would trust you with their kids. I think that was rigged, man. Two, 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 two one. I, I can't believe that. I can't believe you. I mean, I'm really good with kids. Don't particularly like them, but you know, <laughs> I put on a brave face when they're handed to maybe me. Maybe people just knew. Mm. Yeah, maybe. So, right, girl. Right, girl. Yes. <laughs> uh, shall we? Yes, yeah, we this shall. Is, this but is also the structure of the episode, <laughs> because this is a mixtape, so we're not just talking about Right Girl, but we could be choosing an album each that we think is associated with the movement stroke genre. Yeah, you've 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 included a, a useful caveat there because what has happened, and we'll we'll get to it. What has happened is that we've picked albums that aren't specifically in some cases described as right girl and we'll hopefully justify that and weave that and you can include that in your and when you're considering them for the vote as well and say nah that shouldn't be there so that doesn't that doesn't deserve it but yeah uh, i think they're all so we might as well mention what they are right now cool yeah i have chosen uh, fontanelle by babes in toyland which is not a right girl album and predates the right girl movement to some extent yeah but uh yeah i'll i'll make that case later and dave you have picked L7 Bricks Are Heavy Which is also possibly not a Riot Girl album <laughs> uh, So that's exciting but More laptop slamming shit I'll, uh, <laughs> What are these guys fucking doing? <laughs> no but I'll explain my reasoning behind that I'm, not, I'm actually for the first time Really really enthused about your album As much as my own yeah. It's nice after the last set of crap you guys gave me <laughs> <laughs> And Mark? I've picked Dig Me Out by Slater Kinney Which kind of is post Riot Girl It's not um, it's, it's right, girl. 1997. It's, it's kind of it's a, yeah. it's a semantic thing, really. But um, it's more or less. It definitely came out. Either I don't think basically any way you want to see it. I think it is definitely born out of right girl. It's kind of else. a right girl supergroup. Yeah. So you can, yeah. I think you're, I think you're fine with that one. It's a fucking good album as well. Yeah, they're all good albums actually, yeah. and there were there were a few more. There was a lot for consideration. We didn't pick Bikini Kill or La Tigre. Well, there's maybe a couple that we haven't picked that we'd talk about. In mm. an episode on their own, maybe so. Possibly, yeah, and we'll also go quite heavily into it because you can't talk about Right Girl and not talk about Bikini Kill. So, what is Right Girl? Just to cover the bases here, Right Girl was. Uh, largely DIY kind of punk rock alternative rock movement that began in uh, the northwest of America between like Portland, Olympia, Seattle, those kind of areas. It probably had more in common with the kind of movements that were going on in places like Washington DC at the time. Uh, there were some quite high profile female fronted and female, entirely female rock bands um, including L7, including Babes in Toyland and including the young version of the band Hole, amongst many others. Uh, there were the Gits, there were Seven Year Bitch. Belly. 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 No, not he's <laughs> I think I, I think yeah, this is after his time. <laughs> uh, what else we had? We had like Calamity Jane. There was there was some prior as well. You had like Scrawl, Lilliput, the Raincoats. Is it love when I see 
obviously going back, you had the Slits, you had Susie Sue, you had people in New York like Lydia Lunch. Uh, so th there was a lot of like high profile female alternative music, confrontational female music. But identifying what made the Riot Girl movement different kind of tells you a lot about it and its perceived failings and its undeniable successes as well. Mm -hmm. one, one of the things that, that, that working out what distinguishes Riot Girl from the various other female rock and punk movements at the time is kind of like also gives you great insight into what the actual movement was about and what it represented to people and about its perceived failings and its definite successes and almost any of the stories around it seem to trace back to zine culture um, zine, fanzine culture fanzines being you know homemade magazines made by fans of any genre huge part of punk rock and underground music for, for a long time um, stories of even I mean even just simply you know where the things like the name Riot Girl came from they all they all entail cross pollination between various zines and things that were happening on the west coast and in DC at that time there there was a weird tie between the northwest and Washington DC the the, the when you watch for example there's a film called Her Story the history of uh, sorry the Her Story of Riot of Riot Girl uh, they talk about how they made these kind of pilgrimages to Washington DC where they had much more ideologically in common with what was happening there. Uh, than they did in so many other places. Where, you know, that's where Fugazi and the Discord mm -hmm. groups were all based, and it was sort of quite political and quite doing things in squats and doing things for political causes. Uh, but up up in uh, the West Coast at the time, there was a, a fanzine called Jigsaw, which was started by Toby Vale, uh, also uh, one of the members of Bikini Kill and, a, a, I believe, the ex-girlfriend of Kurt Cobain. And she was one of the first people to popularise that girl g-r-r-r-l term there was also a girl called jen smith who was of a band called bratmobile and a girl called alison wolf who had been corresponding in letters and they'd uh, supposedly described this need for a girl riot saying there has to be something to try and widen the demand for equal representation for women i believe alison wolf molly Nauman of bratmobile are kind of credited i've kind of combined these various terms and this various kind of conversation that was going on at the time into riot girl the phrase itself and starting a fanzine by the same name uh which toby vale and kathleen hannah wrote for there's kind of various accounts of that i think some people think that you know kathleen hannah helped start it i think kathleen hannah herself says that they started it and she was just a writer initially which is not to play down a role at all but just it's kind of you know it's useful especially as we're going to discuss, to sort of fairly apportion credit for the various things that happened at that time. Yeah, so that zine went on to lend its name to the movement itself. I think it's probably fair to put jump on at this point just to emphasise the fact that I suppose Kathleen Hanna is seen as being one of the most important figures in the scene. A potty history of her endeavours can be found in the punk singer, which we have spoken about for this podcast. It's kind of a weird mixture of having a lot of good stuff to say, but also airbrushing some shit out. I think yeah, the punk singer is a documentary about Kathleen Hanna specifically, and I think. But it's about hard, you know. What I mean, it's like a biography of hard. Yeah, so. yeah. So using it as like a history of Riot Girl is is going to be frustrating because yeah. there's a lot that's not discussed. It's a little, yeah. I find it a little bit of a a frustrating watch, having read more about the background to Riot Girl because I feel it sort of uh, kind of deletes some people a little bit. Um, I, f I felt it was a wee bit of a hagiography, mm -hmm. to be honest. But there's some really, really useful information in it, and yeah. some really interesting primary stuff with Hannah herself. She's mm -hmm. a really, really fascinating person, a really, really brilliant front woman as well. And it's not surprising that she became such a focus, not just of the movement, but of the media that was attracted to the movement. I think with the term "right girl," I think as with the grunge terminology, 
whenever there is something happening, it's not necessarily that the, the movement itself brands it. It's that the brand arises from the public's reaction to that movement and from its need to be able to refer to it in some way, to define it in some way, to categorise it and to, to other it, whether negatively or positively. I don't know if that's necessarily other than like it's also useful for communication if you want to you know group people together. Absolutely, but but I think they they want to distinguish themselves from other from other movements. Certainly, there were a number of bands, um, two of which David and I are actually mm. picking for the record part of this, who didn't really want to be included in the Riot Girl movement for various reasons, and there was also Hole who didn't want to be included in the Riot Girl movement. In fact, yeah. Courtney was so determined about that that she punched Kathleen Hanna in the face backstage at Lollapalooza. Uh, when she was watching a Sonic Youth show. A lot of people were keen to distance themselves from it. I think on, on Hole's uh, Live Through This album as well, the last track, Rockstar, um, it's it one that's it was meant to be called Olympia. I think it is. But they got the, they got the track name wrong I'm when they, sure, they changed sure the track is. order. That's, like a, that's something of a tirade against the scene in Olympia at the time. Went to school in Olympia, everyone's the same, they look the same, they talk the same, they even fuck the same. Talking about the orthodoxy that arose around the politicization of that scene at that time so yeah i mean i i agree yes you just you want to talk about it you want to have a label about it and the riot girl thing wasn't just one person saying this is now called riot girl that's that's a media reaction and actually a lot of the bands are quite well i'd say quite very uncomfortable with the media interest in them yeah it was sort of a bit of trickle down from the grunge thing they were just down the coast or in some cases actually in the same city because l7 worked with sub pop and so there was a lot of media attention in the Northwest at the time anyway. And there was a hell of a lot of cross-pollination. Kathleen Hanna went out with Dave Grohl of Nirvana. Toby Vale went out with Kurt Cobain. Cap Yelland from Babes in Toyland was, uh, even though not Riot Girl, was friends with Kurt Cobain. And, and obviously Courtney Love knew Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and, and then so many other members of that scene were familiar with each other that it was inevitable that the media would spill over. But some of the early experiences of the Riot Girls with the media were quite adverse I believe Kathleen Hanna in particular they, I mean they ended up doing something like a five year media blackout yeah um, because the media latched onto this story that she was abused as a child and that's why she was a feminist and that was the angle that she took exception to that she was yeah, yeah. she was like I'm not a feminist because I was abused and certainly some of the reports of the abuse she was you know trying to point out at length that her, her father hadn't raped her the, the story seemed to kind of snowball it was kind of Chinese whispers so there's a lot of like misconceptions about that well you know you can absolutely understand that when you look at mainstream media now you look at you know red top tabloids and how guilty they still are of trivializing and uh misrepresenting you know good causes and turning it into bullshit you can absolutely understand why 25 years ago a you know a, a movement like this who wanted a clear message wouldn't want their message being you know completely fucked with in terms of uh, the media and why you would have a complete mistrust so yeah very understandable yeah I mean there's again in the, um, the film history of Riot Girl, there's some footage of them on stage talking about their frustration with the media and then uh, there's also plenty about it in the, in the the punk singer as well talking about the blackout yeah. um, I mean I'm don't want to go on too much of a tangent I'm not convinced necessarily that that was the best way to respond to it by doing a blackout because it, it made it quite well, you know, your movement could reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to know about that. A lot of yeah. people are quite isolated. A lot of people don't live in Olympia or don't live in Portland or don't live in Seattle. And they, they and, parti- and particularly because it was, uh, you know, pre-internet. So it's yeah. very difficult to... It's very difficult to know that something's going on. So I think that was maybe to the exclusion 
of some young women, many young women, young people that might have uh, benefited from it. They made their decision though, you know, they, they stuck by it, they had their principles and that's that's fair enough. And yeah, you can understand, certainly from a personal point of view, why some of that reporting would be deeply offensive and counterproductive as well. Totally. But the, the Riot Girl movement in general was a very DIY thing. Like Hannah had, um, they actually, they're, they're, they're quite open about it. The whole, the whole Bikini Kill coming about was really more of a a way for them to speak politically to crowds than it was to actually perform music. It was, you know, they were doing spoken, Kathleen Hannah was doing spoken word. Um, she was an artist. She'd set up a studio because her studio, uh, she felt her work had been censored when she was at uh, Evergreen State College in the Northwest. And at, part, at the studio that she'd set up, they were having art shows and they were having music in there. And she felt this is a great way to reach people. And so they really just said, look, why don't we start a band? You know, we, we can't play really, but like, let's play. And so it, I think there's an interesting dynamic in there that that magnifies as the, the process goes on. It's perhaps why some people really struggled to relate to the music of the Riot Girl movement because it wasn't a music that, in many cases, was born out of musical necessity or imperative. It was a it was a music that was born out of like political. Motivation. Yeah, the actual music itself was secondary. Yeah, it wasn't the primary creative force. Another tool, basically. Yeah, mm. and I, th- I think as a result, what you see is that there was quite a, and I hope this doesn't offend too many people, but there was a not the highest standard of output from the scene as a whole. There are some excellent moments, but as I said in the research for this, we found more people that were enthused about the politics of Riot Girl than were actually enthused women that were enthused about the politics of Riot Girl than were actually enthused about the music. And there were actually far more people that were positive about the music of L7, Babes in Toyland, Hole, than were positive about the music of any number of the Riot Girl bands. I mean, there are, we should probably put some names out there other than just Bikini Kill to kind of, you know, to show that Bikini Kill is not just interchangeable for the phrase Riot Girl. So um, Brantmobile Mm -hmm. are one of the other main ones associated with it. Um, Heavens to Betsy featuring yep. Corinne Tucker um, Excuse 17 Michaela Brownstein yeah Excuse mm-hmm. 17 we also had in the UK you had Huggy Bear uh, like one of the main kind of UK manifestations of it there was a band called Skinned Team yeah, as well, and um, there were also uh, groups like Team Dresh and the Third Six, who were probably one of the earliest manifestations of queercore as a thing. Very closely affiliated with Right Girl, but um, obviously more coming from the the LGBT community. I think uh, Team Dresh, all, all the band members were gay. And even, even in itself, the fact that they were affiliated with it showed that this was a movement that was coming from a very punk, a very underground place at the time. It doesn't seem that long ago, but it was quite a different environment. It, it's, what kind of strange thing about Riot Girl is it's had a knock-on effect, which I think is undeniable, and we'll kind of talk about that. And there are people that came afterwards, or at least bands, even people that were concurrent with it, that sort of seemed to 
inherit some of its sort of political connotations, such as PG Harvey, I think, and groups like Vruk Assault, um, the Lunatics. But there were also, um, and there's certainly some people since then, such as uh, Savages, uh, CSS. The Gossip. The Gossip, Queen Adrena. Way long. Uh, the Donnas. Mm-hmm. Gossip's an interesting one uh, because she's actually she was actually kind of on that scene at the time. What's that? Beth Dittle. Beth Dittle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, like the gossip stuff. I didn't realize that, but when you when you watch the documentaries and see some of the articles about it, she's actually part yeah. of that from quite quite an early age. I always associate the gossip with being a much more recent phenomenon, but they were yeah they were starting to get moving in the late nineties in that in that environment, which I think is also another reason that there is no end of Riot Girl really mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of a hard and fast end. Mm-hmm. If you talk about Slater Kinney, I think um, the Dig Me Out album is seen by some as being the the end of it because it became commercial mm-hmm. or had mainstream success. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's not particularly a sound either. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a genre born of an ethos. Yeah. So you know you're talking about the bands, but like within that sound, there's there's a huge diversity. You know, you've got your hardcore punky stuff, and you've got way more dreamy pop stuff. You've got, mm-hmm. and it, I suppose the main the grunge is the main influence there. But you know, it, it all stems from that. So you know, mm-hmm. it's a very varied. Genre, if it is a genre. Talking about it not having an end either, it's like one of my favourite bands just now is a band called Warren Women who are just utterly incredible. And they're basically the right girl band, just a much more hardcore version of it. Well, I think Right Girl is unlike some of the other ones, is very bootstrapped. So, the, as I said, like, like with Bikini Kill, it wasn't about a musical imperative or years of playing music and trying to do that. It was like, how can we get a message out? How can we be young women and make a noise? How can we command a stage and claim back some of the public forum from this undeniable monopolisation that's mm-hmm. taken on, that, that's taken place at the hands of men? Yeah, Warren Moon were on what Warp Tour last year, but they were on it for that specific reason. Because mm. you know, they like, there was like, we need to be part of this platform, even if... You know, even if it's like a over the course of the, well, I guess since it's existed, there's always been a lot of you know weird and dodgy stuff that's went on at the tour. I can't remember. I think it might have been the Warp Tour. L7 once paid for a plane to fly over with a banner that said uh, "Warp Tour needs more beaver." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, classy. I like it. <laughs> there are definitely issues with that still. Yeah, with festival lineups. Even yeah. even now, yeah, yeah. yeah to this day, up. I think we could do with more beaver. Little more than a year, eighteen months into the Riot Girl movement, there were some signs of cracks starting to show, though. Um, and it's kind of an interesting because it's such a political movement because it's so politically charged and so like so uh, indelibly entangled with social issues and you know zines and politics and messaging, as opposed to just being hey. We're just kids having a good time. That was not what Riot Girl was about. There was a there was an aspect that we're just young women having a good time and being safe, and certainly that was part of it. But they, it couldn't be completely disentangled from the political concerns, and as a result, it was always quite charged. So quite early on, 
there started to be some issues raised um, with representation, with intersectionality, as we'd call it now. One of the one of the earliest kind of figures in that zine culture was a girl called Dasha Bixim. Dasha Bixim is black, and she speaks about, like I said, about twelve month, eighteen month mark, starting to become very hyper aware of the fact that she was the only only person of color that was involved on a regular basis or directly. Now she 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 ran a fanzine called Gunk, which was actually the fanzine that ran the initial Riot Girl manifesto as submitted by Kathleen Hanna. And that was quite an iconic moment for Riot Girl. It was like here is what this is. Here is how we define ourselves, more or less, and it was a a very empowering moment. So it's it's an interesting coincidence that that sometime later that was one of the biggest cracks that began to show was that in that scene it seemed like very few women of color were were becoming involved. It's not unusual though. A lot of scenes at the start as well are the same. You know, like hardcore in the eighties, you know, punk generally. You know, there was not a lot of you know, diverse representation from our cultures. Mm. I actually have I have mixed feelings about that. So I was kind of looking at some of the major criticisms of Right Girl and the major failings of it that started to sort of fragment it and that also led to other people wanting to distance themselves from it to some extent. And, you know, in terms of exclusion, there was there was there was an issue of exclusion of non white. There was an issue of class, saying that it was mainly middle class. There was the issue of the exclusion of men. And there was this, the issue of the marginalisation of LGBT+. Plus. And I think there's varying levels of truth to those. And I honestly, I can, I can completely empathise, not understand, but empathise with Dasha Bixim's frustration at the lack of women of colour that were involved in that movement. At the same time, I find it unlikely that women of colour were being refused access to that movement. I've I've really tried to find that out in the course of doing this, and I couldn't see anything that was actually saying, you know, they were proactively being discouraged or refused permission to participate. It seems that maybe there wasn't enough outreach done, but I don't think that's... It's a young movement at this point, and it's a it's a bootstrapped, relatively, a, you know, anarchic thing where it's, you know, nobody's really in charge of this. Nobody is... And it's, very, it's very grassroots and organic. So it's like people telling their friends, telling their friends, and if it starts off small then that's just how social networks in the old-fashioned sense work. Yeah. And it's I, still a problem that exists now as well in a lot of the scenes that we move in. So something, I think it's it's definitely not... I don't think it could ever be seen as... or could ever, could ever really be, you know, uh, seriously said that it's exclusionary, you know, actively yeah, exclusionary. I think that's the thing. I, I, I don't get that impression of it. Mm. Um, and I think... We're hyper aware of that now, but it, it was definitely a criticism levelled at it. I mean, in terms of the marginalisation of LGBT persons, there was, as I said, there was a, a couple of bands, uh, Team Dresh especially, who were very representative of that. Mm-hmm. You also had the likes of um, La Tigre. Um, like Kathleen Hanna went on to be in La Tigre, mm-hmm. and they were an excellent band, but uh, and had a, a transgender member, mm-hmm. but attracted considerable criticism for playing the I think called the Women uh, Born Women Festival which was a festival specifically for women born women which even now I think it's rebranded as just the Women Fest such and such something like that but um, it's still considered it still raises a few eyebrows because it is so specifically saying we are disinviting people uh, persons who identify as women who were not born women 
I, as I understand it, actually, they're they're not hard and fast in that. And I've seen some articles written by transgender people defending it, saying it's not actually like that. But regardless, there are definitely some question marks above it. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like there was any deliberate attempt to exclude. What I think is more likely, though, is there is certainly, and there remains some friction between second and third wave feminism on that issue. Um, you can even see it in things like the the deplatforming and people like Jermaine Greer. Mm-hmm for her some of the things for some of the comments she's made on the matter and these are women who've spent their whole lives fighting for women's rights and their beliefs are running up against more contemporary beliefs even though they're on vaguely par they're on vaguely kind of parallel trajectories it's, it's very much a thing of the left you know that, that phenomenon the left eating itself where you're you're pursuing parallel objectives but we're very prone to infighting mm. on our methodology rather than identifying an overall goal there tends to be a hell of a lot of infighting and backbiting and almost grabs for orthodoxy where you're like, yeah, you're going for it, but you're not doing it the right way. I'm doing it the right way. And that's a, that seems to be a re- something that really holds back these movements. And it seems like since the issue with LGBT persons has contributed to some, to some extent to the erosion of enthusiasm in, in Riot Girl, it's another example of that kind of infighting eroding something that ostensibly seemed to be a very positive movement. Um, I don't think there can be much argument about the middle class part of it. I think a lot of these young women were going to college, they were studying arts degrees, They, far from all of them, but certainly a number of them had reasonable access to means to do this. They went under great financial pressure, they were able to invest in various aspects of printing presses, design tools, instruments. It does seem pretty likely that it was over the piece at a more middle class movement and it kind of seems to be the case with most such things I mean there's a lot of like great art rock and I think art rock tends to be the domain of persons from like middle class you know it's, it's it, we could really go into that if we were again <laughs> I think as a whole other podcast that's an, that's an entire other you know series yeah but I mean I don't think there's any malice from it from the it being created from that because you know that class and that money just affords you the time to be able to do something and instead of spending all your money on consumer products absolutely you and do something positive i agree it's then it's then where you can call in a question further engagement with poor classes etc yes i guess that's, really that's what you need to do when i really come down to the fact that classes kind of weaponized as a way to kind of highlight how lacking in i guess political uh, sort of class nous you know what I mean? Like mm. it's kind of talking about how, like, yeah, because you're middle class and like your your experience is somehow less legitimate. I think this movement could be quite uh, class centric. It could be certainly it was a very white movement, albeit I don't think that was intentional in any way. But once you add those factors of it being white and middle class, you're like, okay, a lot of people do start to maybe look at it and feel a little bit marginalised. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit there's no malice there. I think an interesting aspect uh, as well. The fourth thing. That where the fourth uh, pillar where it was seen as being quite divisive is in terms of men, in terms of the othering of men and the the exclusion of men. So the girls to the front movement, I think, in a lot of ways, is a really positive thing. I mean, the the hardcore scenes, as we know, punk fans especially, know that they could be pretty volatile, and mm. women and many many men were no doubt sick of being kicked in the head. And can I just say that's for me? That's what I find most interesting and most valuable in the punk in the punk singer. Was basically all the women saying, "Look, look, like we were going to these shows, and it was just fucking, it was like chaos. 
and we wanted to be down the front. You know, but it's really difficult to overcome the the dickhead's motion down the front. Absolutely, but by the same token, women are not wilting daisies. Oh, totally, yeah. You know, I mean, and I like I've I've many friends, yeah, who, totally. who female friends who love a mosh pit as much as any absolutely, man, yeah. Know. But the fact that it's just caught, like it's just there, you know, it's just that's automatically something that happens. Yeah, it's, you know? it's something it shouldn't it shouldn't I, be. I think even just as a statement, the girls to the front thing is is really interesting and, and served a really good purpose and it was deserved it was it was something that was overdue because there certainly was a bro attitude within that scene and to be fair though like a number of male bands and a number of people like Henry Rollins and mm. Ian McKay and guys like that in Washington were doing a lot to try and break that down themselves as allies of the feminist movement uh, in, in fact I think it was um, Sharon Cheslow of uh, Chalk Circle who were like an all-female punk band for the DC said that actually when Henry Rollins left DC he was so respected he was doing a lot to dictate the behaviour of the crowds and when he moved on with the band and moved to like LA the tone of the shows in DC dropped again she was like the behaviour deteriorated again without somebody to kind of enforce without a strong male spokesperson mm-hmm. enforcing over them and that's kind of an interesting phenomenon the only thing is alongside the girls to the front thing and this is maybe a good place to actually segue into one of the interviews was men being asked to pay more to get into shows than women and I know from having tried to invite people to speak on this subject as we said a few found that very uncomfortable they were like that's as feminists, these were, these were all women who identify as feminists and girls who identify as feminists, but they were they were adamant that they were like, that is a part of it I'm not comfortable with because that's not what I consider to be feminism. It's not a turning the tables, it's not a revenge thing. It's, it's yeah, okay, that's a statement, but it's not about grandstanding, it's about being... Developing and building yeah, a stronger and also relationship. Take, taking yeah. the moral high ground and saying we don't need to resort to exclusionary mm-hmm. tactics in order to attain that. What we want is equality. Yeah, And I think that was a that was probably most prevalent as a theme in the interview I did with Anna Goldthorpe. Mm-hmm. Now Anna's a DJ uh, with a, a regular club night in Glasgow called Shake Appeal as well as a number of other things. So we'll cut to that interview just now and Anna had some interesting things to say about the scene in general um, but a, a, about that aspect in particular. I was mad into music from the Bay Area so everything that was on Lookout Records I would dive into. I also listened to female fronted bands that were on lookout just because they were on different lookout compilations but the donnas were the big one for me i tried to listen to them before they released uh, spend the night but the vocals weren't right for me i really enjoyed the riffs and then when spend the night came out their singer's tone of voice changed and it got a wee bit deeper and then i just loved everything that they did after that being an all-female band as well was amazing and Alison Robertson is such a fantastic guitarist that that was really great for me to see and I'm going to be honest they were nice to look at as well they wore cool clothes and they would rock out when they were playing and they weren't afraid to get really sweaty and just enjoy it female vocals from the 80s like Joan Jett and then post-90s, the distillers were my two big things. Garbage I listened to a lot. Um, They obviously started in the 90s, but it was more the stuff that they started releasing after 2000 that I was into. I really appreciate the Riot Girl movement and what it's done for female-fronted bands or bands with females in it. What I would say is that although the impact of Riot Girl has been seen throughout music since that period and it's really important, the actual style of the music isn't my kind of thing. 
a lot of what I listened to was either too grungy for me or too slow. Um, the vocals maybe weren't my kind of thing because I found a lot of them really whiny. And even tracing it back to earlier bands that influenced Riot Girls, such as X-Ray Specs and other bands that were associated with the punk movement, I just really didn't like the vocals on them. Like the slits, everyone goes nuts for them. Just not my kind of thing at all. And even recently, I've tried to listen to them again and thought maybe my my ear has matured now and I'll appreciate them in a different way. And it's just, it's not my bag. I would say that the political influence was actually a draw for me to want to listen to these bands. I felt that as a feminist and someone who identifies as a socialist and very much um, in equality, that I would love listening to music that sang about equality and also the punk ethos of um, going against the grain and doing something that's different was right up my street, which is actively why I've tried to listen to Riot Girl throughout the years, thinking I'll find something that I like that's a bit different and it just doesn't do it for me. The whininess is absolutely about the tone of the vocals. That's what I don't like and... I feel as though saying that I like Shirley Manson, Brody Dow, singers like that, you, they'll sing stuff that's politically aware at times about being a woman in the what is classed as a man's world. But I don't feel that they're whiny at all. It's very much the sound. When it comes to Shirley Manson, I think it probably is to an extent a calculated move to sing about feminist issues particularly the way that she was discovered because she was just a keyboard player in Goodbye Mr Mackenzie and then was swept up into being the new singer for this band that Butch Vig constructed and to me that goes against I guess being discovered for your talent rather than your appearance or your attitude but she definitely has something to say that's very valid I think that it's important that you have women who are outspoken, even if they are part of, I guess, like corporate music machine, because they still have something to say. And if they're using their platform to say something, then I feel that that's important. And I didn't consider when I was younger about them being part of something that was actually going against the grain in a sense of maybe what Riot Girls stood for, trying to be of a more DIY ethic. I've got really mixed feelings about the way that they were using positive discrimination to try and attract more women to shows. And although I understand the background of charging less for women on the door than for men, it's not true equality. So I've got an issue with that. Um, the girls to the front thing I believe in because I know how difficult it is as a woman when you're in a crowd trying to watch a band and frankly guys are rubbing up against you or giving you hassle and you don't want that. You want to be in a safe space but still enjoying the music. Personally, I now end up just standing at the back of the room because it's not worth the hassle. Different things that they did with reclaiming words like slut on wearing stuff on t-shirts, doing things that were to try and provoke a reaction is important because it makes people think. And it, even now it's making someone like me think about my own language, words that I use and realising that actually 
I can be part of the problem at different times where I'm using words that I shouldn't use that are developed to frequently put women down. I struggle with the battle between the second and third wave of feminism because I can see faults in both of them from my own perspective. They're clashing with each other and I think it's really important to adapt and the likes of Kathleen Hanna praising people such as Beyonce. I find it difficult to get my head around because Beyonce is just part of what I perceive to be a problem within music. I've, I feel as though it's great that someone can be feeling empowered in their body, but then the way that they objectify themselves really doesn't sit well with me. Um, the fact that Beyonce sang that song, Bow Down Bitches, like putting other women down, really rubbed me up the wrong way. And I feel as though, are they thinking that they're singing and behaving in a way that is making them feel empowered and making them an equal but actually they're part of the problem because they're just falling in and into that kind of consumerist society of what's expected of women looking sexy, behaving in a certain way, singing songs about like just utter shite. I don't know. I, I don't know if you can really call them true feminists, but then you're getting into a whole thing about, well, what's the scale of a feminist? It's important that everybody does their little bit. And I don't mean that everyone has to be totally hard line, but Kathleen Hanna is someone that I've never really been able to get my head around. Her whiny voice really fucking rips my knitting. I cannot stand it at all. Anyway, I watched that documentary about her because I thought, no, she's someone that ethically I think I should like. And then when I saw the documentary, I thought, actually, no, she isn't really someone who's my cup of tea. I think it's terrible what she's went through with her different undiagnosed health problems. Musically, <sighs> Julie Ruin as well. That's a pile of pish. <laughs> I think the legacy of Riot Girl has certainly impacted on making lots of women feel as though it's okay to be a female in a band. Like I was saying earlier about being in the crowd and stuff. I think that it's important that what they stood for has an impact on that. I'm not really sure legacy wise if the Riot Girl sound has had a huge impact for, for me it certainly was an aesthetic. Has the political influence of them filtered down so much now that people are going to forget the changes that happened? Or is it still there working away in the background and making an influence at gigs and even for young people? I think it's been a really good thing. I'm just not sure how much it is then impacted in a musical style sense. So... As Anna describes <laughs> alongside some colourful reviews. Um, I enjoyed that. Yeah, totally. Pile of pish being uh, <laughs> for anyone out with Scotland. There you go. That's our gift to you. Ripping my as well, mate. Ripping my knitting. A gendered term as well, Anna. Shame on you. Um, it's it's mind blowing to me that people still feel like they can't go down the front of shows. Yeah. I get that. I get that. I, I can understand it. I can understand. I couldn't understand I mean, as I mean, well, but it's still mainstream. To be honest, see, even like... having gone to see so many hardcore bands when I was younger, I'd, as a, a male, I'd found the macho atmosphere incredibly alienating. I still don't listen to a lot of hardcore, not because of the music, but I, because I find that the atmosphere and the, mm. the, 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 
male approach to it really really off-putting some of the music's great mm-hmm. but it really kills me that hyper uh, masculine sort of uh it, like especially circle pits I, I can completely imagine if you're a woman and you know you're on average your your body size is smaller you're you're shorter you're elbow high to these guys you know you're just uh, that must be a, a deeply unpleasant experience it's a deeply unpleasant experience for me as, as a yeah. male but i mean as anna raises the issue of are we going for equality or are we going for revenge kind of comes up a bit when people were describing the the, the you know the, the the price on the door thing at the same time i was i was kind of thinking about this and I, I maybe a wee bit to the left of anna on this one in the sense that it could be a, a, maybe a slight element of satire but there's definitely a level of commentary on the pay gap and yeah that, um i would and, probably say so as well and in, in, in terms of you know the pay gap is Pay gap's a thorny issue because the pay gap is often not as much as people make it out to be and the problem that creates is it's therefore easier for it to be shot down by mm-hmm. people who say there is no pay gap and there absolutely is a pay gap. The difference is that the criteria that are used to calculate it are often quite sloppily done mm-hmm. and they they walk into the trap of making the, their statistics quite easy to refute when they shouldn't. They don't need to. They don't need to exaggerate the figures because the fact that there is any pay gap is inexcusable. There's no need to exaggerate it. But the whole the whole notion of paying more on the door is a is an interesting turn on that in terms of shining a light on the fact that there is a, a gender pay gap. It's like okay, we're paying this yeah, much. Yeah, and I think it's a useful tool because it's not like they're saying this is what the entire system in society should be. This is what every show. It's they're just doing their bit with that show. And making a a statement about it. So if I went to a club night and it was four pound for you know females to get in and five pound for males to get in, and it said something about you know this is we're making a statement about gender, I'd be like, oh cool, that's fine. Most of the I'll night, just pay that. I don't know. know. I don't know what uh, all Ness is like, man. But most of uh, most of Sterling, the uh, just like girls in nightclubs because they're desperate for them. To go well, on. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. So um, I think absolutely, but I can also appreciate some of Anna's perspective on that because I was watching some of Ian Mackay's commentary on it as well, and Ian Mackay was talking about the hostility he met with when he tried to sing the song "Suggestion," and the so many members of the Riot Girl movement responded to that, um, saying that he was exploiting the issue of sexual assault, that he was exploiting women's experience. Just, you know, for credibility, for sales, for the reputation of his band. Ian McKay's response to that was pretty abrupt. He was like, fuck you. Hmm. Um, but he speaks interestingly of that as somebody who, I mean, Ian McKay recorded a Bikini Kill. Ian McKay is all the way through Bikini Kill's story. He's, a, he's a, definitely an ally of theirs. Um, they played with Fugazi at that huge Washington yeah, protest. Yeah. It was a, a famous show. But he does describe that about how even within the ranks of people who were aligned under the same banners there were people then turning around and attacking them because he tried to sing a song about a woman's experience he's like well maybe we're reaching an audience that won't hear mm-hmm. a woman's perspective and we want them to and and i mean certainly when figazi played I mean, there's recordings of them for example in glasgow where they used to bring women up on stage to tell their story of an experience so during suggestion they kind of go into that kind of musical holding pattern invite women up on stage one at a time to describe an experience they'd had of being harassed or, you know, abused by men or even just, you know, catcalled, things like that. Like, what is it like to be a woman? And so, I, mean, I don't think Fugazi were by any means part of the problem. So it, it, there is an element of, again, just fictitiousness, you know, interfactionality within this movement that is causing so many mixed messages and it is alienating people like Anna, who are very ideologically consistent with it on a lot of parts, but then certain other parts are taking aspects too yeah. far. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, hey, as you said, that's the story of the left wing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
I think it's really. I thought it was really interesting the way that she also picked apart the sound. I always find that that kind of, I guess, the vocal that Anna would call whiny. That's a good way of saying that. Mm-hmm. I, so I, as I think good as any other, I guess. I think that sounds bratty, and I think that's deliberate. Yeah, maybe. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they, they talk about it a wee bit in um, the punk yeah. singing as well. Ka- Kathleen Hanna spoke with a valley girl thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. She, she, she spoke like that yeah. in, almost in an affected way mm-hmm. that was meant to sound like obnoxiously sort of white middle class American female mm-hmm. like it, it, it does almost seem like I, I can't quite tell how, how authentic it actually is um, she says isn't it yeah she, she says, she she says just, that it's she completely just, completely manufactured yeah yeah but except it seems to be the way she speaks now mm-hmm. well if you do something for long enough John, ba- <laughs> John Barrowman for example Ethan Paisley yeah 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 I suppose so <laughs> Lulu <laughs> yeah. another feminist icon there <laughs> So yeah, I mean, yeah, there is something to that. There's a there's an element of role play, and Anna was talking about them, you know, writing slut and bitch and all kind and whore and mm-hmm. things in their bodies. So there was definitely an element of theatre to the right girl shows as well. It's interesting because even in the documentary, the women interviewed in the documentary talk about Kathleen Hanna being sexy in the same way as Anna was describing. You know, for example, the Donnas. There's an mm-hmm. element of like admiration, or you know, of just like physical admiration, mm-hmm. and. Kathleen Hanna uses, you can tell she uses like her experience as a, a dancer, mm-hmm. as we were talking about just earlier on, to kind of maximise the impact of that show, to be a threatening, intimidating, strong, opinionated young woman, yet playing with the tropes mm-hmm. of that femininity at the same yeah, time. Completely and, in control of their own sexuality and, and their own autonomy as being a sexual being and using it in an aggressive way, which is what women are told not to do. You know, yeah. it's the complete opposite of, of, of that, which is, I think, it's a good way of approaching it if you're going to be in a punk band and you've got a message, you know? I thought it was an interesting point Anna made about the Beyonce stuff. I mean, anyone yep. anyone that knows me knows I've got a real bee in my bonnet about Beyonce anyway, I think. She's horrendous. But that aside, when, when Anna raised that, uh, like, Kathleen Hanna's been quite outspoken. And again, we're, we're focusing on Kathleen Hanna. This is not a Kathleen Hanna podcast, but unfortunately, Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill are so synonymous with the movement in a lot of ways. Um, and she's been quite outspoken about people like Taylor Swift and Beyonce as very strong role models mm-hmm. for young women, which to me seems extremely inconsistent. Now, there was a couple of writers that had written about the, the punk movement and the Riot Girl movement. Marissa Meltzer, who'd, who'd written uh, Girl Power, uh, the 90s revolution in music or something. She's of the belief that Riot Girl kind of informed the Spice Girls. And I would actually tend to slightly agree to some extent um, I do think there's an element of that and we spoke about it a bit in the grunge thing as well how grunge can influence things that don't necessarily sound particularly like it but it's the mainstream's adaptation of that trend yeah. and I do think when Riot Girl and some of the other female bands started to break through there was an appetite for you know let's have some ballsy cheeky women out there making us money on the part of these labels that's however where that, that even that's given it away that's where I have a problem with it because I do think it's like an, an entirely calculated thing I don't think Right Girl was and it certainly wasn't a commercial venture but it, the things like Spice Girls uh, things like Alanis Morissette are commercial ventures they're, they're blatantly commercial ventures and commercial ventures from by companies that are overwhelmingly owned and staffed by men uh, so Marissa Meltzer kind of reflected on that and sort of some kind of positive thing kind of stuck in my throat a little bit and clearly Anna was the same whereas Sarah Marcus who'd written Girls to the Front which is like one of the most sort of uh, iconic books about about the movement she, she countered that it was a mainstream kind of grab for money exploiting the work that was being done by, by these young women and she kind of felt things like I think Beyonce had covered You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette 
as some kind of response to finding out that her husband had had an affair and as Anna was saying, you know, there's so many aspects to the, the lyrics of, you know, shaming other women or the the response to Jay-Z having that affair and stuff. Just things that for me just ideologically are seem a million miles away, if not diametrically opposed to what this movement was meant to represent. And so even though Modern Riot Girl and the new manifestations of it do seem much more intersectional, much more at ease with third wave feminism, much more at ease with the kind of... Some of the ideological inconsistencies that plague that, uh, in my opinion, I don't understand Kathleen Hanna putting her weight behind them, if I'm being honest. It's probably more about autonomy, isn't it? These are women that have got more control over their careers than any women has ever had, music, and musically especially when part of the big system. I, I mean, this is the argument I've had many, many times, but I, I can think that's probably a, where she's coming at it from. There's a bit of an illusion, though, as to how much. I mean, because Jay Z is still worth multiples of Beyonce, yeah. despite you know all the different things he's got going against him, including his face. Mm-hmm. So I mean, <laughs> I, I I think those realities recontextualize that perspective. It's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, but they're all working for companies that are owned by men that are far richer than them, and these companies are massively massively predominantly owned by men yeah so there is just enough autonomy just enough autonomy to give the illusion of autonomy but the real autonomy would be if 51 percent of these companies were owned by women but that's not going to happen overnight stepping that way though isn't it stepping this is stepping that way and making waves it's going to be a long journey man yeah i don't the, 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 I, i've got i've actually got back context i can give to this even though it's not related to music but my employer at the moment I've been involved in a project for women in tech and there's not a lot of women there's only 70% of people that work in the workforce in technology are, are women and like 10 years ago 15 years ago that was like 3% so still a way to go but it's getting better yeah I, I, I don't disagree I don't think La Tigre producing songs for Christina Aguilera is is about that though mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure that it it's is it's not really La Tigre I think it's just JD is it not well okay um, but I, th- I think it's more about borrowed credibility I think it's about sales I think it's quite cynical and I think it's nice to look in the bright side of things but I don't think these are necessarily what are making steps forward mm-hmm. I, I don't think making Warner Brothers richer is, is particularly conducive to equality in that sense I would love to think it was I just don't see it as I think Riot Girl was a massive step yeah, but forward you're, what's happening here is two competing social progressions here you're talking about diversity and then you're talking about capitalism and diversity is moving forward slightly but capitalism is still Empowered, yeah, and, you know. So and, that's and capitalism is a patriarchal system. Yeah, yeah. So it comes yeah. back to what I was saying earlier on about it. And that, but that's why I think the riot girl movement is so much more potent. And that's why when you try and then retrofit that to capitalism, it's like you've got a movement that was not orientated by money. It was mm-hmm. not. It was not driven by those kind of concerns, and therefore was able to empower women. Was able to shun that framework that makes women inherently profitable, the better looking they are. And by the way, it was not exempt from it. I mean, Kathleen Hanna got a lot of crit- criticism for allowing herself to be portrayed as the face of Riot Girl mm-hmm. because she was good looking, mm-hmm. you know, and there were other women in that scene doing a hell of a lot. I mean, certainly some of the, the, the founders of it, like Amanda Wolf, had, had a hell, like a lot to do with, with the beginning of Riot Girl, but were not as, to be blunt, photogenic not as marketable. Kathleen Hanna. So you, like Kat Bjelland from Babes in Toyland had, had, had gotten frustrated that, like, you know, why is this now about photo opportunities for this girl? And I, I think, you know, Riot Girl was mercifully free of those constraints and therefore able to make real progress, albeit short-lived because they started to interfight. Mm-hmm. But once you try and then fit that into a system that is based on exploitation, and I, I am not some like raging far-left like anti-capitalist, I do think there are moderate forms of capitalism that can work, 
I just don't think that trying to then operate in a system whereby you're saying that Taylor Swift or Beyonce are somehow consistent with the values that you upheld out with that system. I just don't think that makes any mm-hmm. sense whatsoever. I think that's fair. I do think, I mean, I think it's easy to see from her, why she's saying that, you know, from her perspective, because she's seen things which are probably a lot more, which would definitely be a lot more empowering to young women than anything she would have experienced at the time. You know, that was in the pop sphere and no, the commercial Mad- sphere. Madonna, I would say, is far more empowering than Taylor Swift. Yeah, but I mean, come on, like, one person back then. Not just one. In the pop sphere. Cindy Lauper, who we all knew was completely manufactured. and Yeah, but know. we've had that com- conversation yeah. before, though, where it was like, like Cindy Lauper, Pat Benatar, Madonna, Tina Turner. Um, there were high-profile women back then as well. I yeah, think totally. it's, I think it's simply that the industry is better at selling you an idea now mm-hmm. than it was then. I think it was more naive then. It was so a more it was a think, more rudimentary industry, but now we're better at lying. Do you think that she's you think she's um, been kind of sucked up in the marketing of these individuals then? I just think she's mellowed as she's gotten older. Think so? Yeah, I do. I think she's she's mellowed and she's life's taking the edge off her a little bit. Well, that's what happens, isn't it? You uh, stop reading the Guardian and you start reading the Telegraph as you get older. <laughs> that's, that's the way of all things, I'm afraid. Um, just touching on a couple of other things that Anna said as well. She mentioned X-ray specs. Mm-hmm. Um, X-ray specs uh, fronted by polystyrene. Yeah. It was half Somalian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and X-ray specs were a really, really excellent punk band. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. But I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four! There's also Teenage Jesus and the Jerks who get totally overlooked featuring Lydia Lynch and again Lydia Lynch sort of is as much a performance artist and like confrontational performance artist at that as anything and they were a highly influential band albeit based in New York at the time. We were talking about the punk singer documentary. One of the things that really ripped my knitting about that film (laughs) was, because as I said, I felt it was a bit of a hagiography Mm -hmm. and there were moments in it where there's one quote which goes along the lines of, I'd never seen a woman on stage being so angry, talking about Kathleen Hanna. You can't have been trying very fucking hard at these concerts because the northwest of America was abundant with them at the time. Mm -hmm. And even just talking to L7, L7 were from L.A., releasing on a Seattle label. They were up and down that coast, right, left and centre. Mm. So it is a little bit frustrating mm-hmm. to see them whitewashed, or not even whitewashed, Kim, you know, just Kim, I mean, deleted. And Kim Gordon's in the documentary. Yeah, I, you yeah, know, you Kim know, Gordon like, was uh-huh. on stage very upset at yeah. times. By the way, you made the comment about, remember during the Grinch, the Grinch thing about mm-hmm. Foxcore? Yeah. Foxcore was actually... Thurston Moore. Thurston yeah. Moore talking about babes in Thailand. Yeah. That was his first mm-hmm. reference to it. But and yeah, he, so he did get his boss kicked for that, as you said. But yeah, I mean, absolutely did you know, he probably need to get his boss kicked for it, to be fair. Yeah, well, Kim divorced him eventually, didn't she? <laughs> so um, I, I felt some of those comments um, saying that, oh, this, you know, Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill were something that needed to happen. It, it, yeah, they were excellent, mm. excellent at points, especially. I mean, I'd, I would go to the mat for the song um, Rebel Girl, which yeah. I think is one of the best songs mm. of that era. I think it's a fucking tremendous song. Would you talk? 
don't think they have a great back catalogue, yeah. but I do think they have some great moments. 